it again. The book of Revelation, as we've looked, is not one long description of the end times. It's actually one description of the end times that's repeated seven times. So John will start and go through, say, the seven churches, and then he'll start again and talk about the same period of time, say, like the seven seals. And then he'll start again, say, the seven trumpets, which is where we're at now. And we'll see John repeat this time frame for a total of seven times. Nearly every one ends with a description of the Lord's return and the day of the Lord. So that's an important thing to keep in mind as we look, especially as we'll see that in our passage again today, this uh, recycling of events, uh, we'll call it. It's like a instant replay, if you would. Each, each different time he goes through it, it's from a different perspective. Each time adds a little more to the, the complete picture. But uh, we will see this again in our passage this morning. We've been studying uh, the first 14 verses of chapter 11. We'll come down to the end of that section today, but in case you've been out or gone, I just want to begin with verse 1 just to remind you of the things we've been looking at over the past few Sundays, bring you kind of up to speed, if as it were, and just uh, that will help us see the verses for this morning in their context. So let's uh, read Revelation chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read all the way through verse 14. So hear the word of the Lord. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple, but leave that out, for it is given over to the Gentiles and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours uh, from, the, from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, 
and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Let's pray for help again as we study this. Father, we do cry out for your mercy this morning. Strengthen us with your grace. Father, send your spirit afresh upon us. Give, give us seeing eyes, hearing ears. This morning we pray, O Christ, in your name. Amen. Well, we come to the conclusion of this section, as I've just mentioned to you, this portion that I've been referring to as the, the comfort and commission of Christ's church, because throughout this chapter, uh, Christ brings comfort and encouragement uh, to his church living on earth uh, during the time of the seven trumpet judgments. That's you and me, and the time is now. We are living in the time of the seven trumpet judgments. And I've said there are four parts to this, as you can tell by the number four on the slide behind me. The first part was concerning the identity of the church, how Christ measured the boundaries of his church and guaranteed their safety. The second part was about the witness of the church, how uh, Christ commissions and empowers his church to proclaim the gospel during this age. The third part last Sunday was uh, about the preservation of the church. Uh, Jesus will build his church throughout this age, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And this morning we come to this concluding portion of his comfort and his commission, and this fourth, fourth part concerns the removal of the church from the world. Jesus Christ returns to remove his church from the world. What will this removal look like? One Christian author suggests that this removal will result in something like this. The removal of the church will be worldwide, for there are true believers in Jesus Christ in every country on earth, and they all shall be taken. Every country will find itself in turmoil. Each government will have to act as quickly as possible to prevent a wide tide of anarchy and terrorism. Strong measures will be put into effect. Millions of people will suddenly disappear from the face of the earth, including all of the infant children. From all walks of life and from virtually every phase of life, there shall be people missing. The freeways, subways, airports, and streets will be in a shambles as many engineers, pilots, bus drivers, and a multitude of private car owners shall suddenly be caught up out of this world. It will be many days before they can unscramble the mangled cars, trains, and fallen aircraft. Remaining millions of people will be wailing, dazed and shaken by the event. They shall be frantically striving to locate loved ones in all of the rubble of broken cars and amid broken storefronts and smashed residences. Communications will be greatly disrupted. Many key persons shall disappear, and much of the lines of communications which are still above ground will be broken by crashes of cars and aircraft. Distraught and searching multitudes will jam and overload the communication lines and systems that do remain. 
Dazed and confused pleas from bewildered men over the alert systems will try to bring about some semblance of order. Policemen, firemen, and rescue crews will work around the clock. Hospitals will overflow. Emergency shelters and first aid stations will be inadequate. The Red Cross and all other emergency units plus the Army facilities will not be enough. Opportunists will add to the confusion and the misery by looting and killing. They shall feel that under such a total emergency, they can get away with anything. Chaos will be on every hand. Now, this is what many of us were taught growing up, myself included, uh, that when Christ removes his church from the world, there will be chaos. I've come to see things differently over the years, and I don't Personally, I don't believe Scripture teaches this view, that the removal of the church will look like this gentleman has described. What will the removal of the church look like? What will the rapture of the church look like? Certainly our passage today, these three verses, doesn't tell us everything that will happen when Jesus returns for his church. As we move further into the book of Relation and see this timeline repeated, uh, we'll get a fuller and more complete picture of what happens when Christ returns. But these three verses give us plenty. Our passage today prevents a very good picture of what will happen when Christ removes his church. Now, if you hold the view that I read just a minute ago, then my encouragement to you is just simply keep an open mind. Uh, let the Word of God speak to you, and uh, we can still be friends when this is all over today. So what will the rapture of the church look like? What happens when Christ removes his church? Well, there are three events in our passage that describe the removal of the church. Three events that take place at Christ's return. Again, this is not the full scope of the picture. Uh, it gets added to the further we go in the book, but this is, this is enough for today. So the first event that we find is that the church uh, is raptured. The first event we see is the church raptured. Believers are removed from earth at the last trumpet to meet the Lord in the air. And there are five characteristics of this rapture that I'd like to point out in our passage today. The first is that uh, Christ returns for his church. Christ returns to remove believers. Look in verse uh, 12 uh, in your copy of the word. It says, Then they heard a loud voice from heaven. Uh, who does they refer to? It's an important uh, question. Uh, they refers to the group that we've been reading about that's been addressed throughout chapter 11. They refers to the church, the followers of Jesus, all those who have trusted in the atoning death of Christ, the elect. Uh, John introduced the church back in verse 1. If you want to look back in verse 1 to see how he introduced them, he referred to them as the temple of God. 
When I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Uh, some believe that this is an actual temple that will be constructed in a future seven-year period called the Tribulation. Uh, three weeks ago, I described why, uh, why that is probably not the case. Uh, God's temple is the place where he dwells with his people, and several places in the New Testament tell us that his temple is now in believers, both individual believers and all believers, as we gather and assemble as a church. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16 is the verse to keep in mind here. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? The church is described as the temple, and then we get to verse 3. We hear the church referred to as my two witnesses. And then verse 4 says, these are the two olive trees. That's a reference to Zechariah 4 and the two spirit-filled leaders of Israel mentioned there. And then it says that there are two lampstands. Uh, this is how Christ has been referring to the seven churches in chapters 1 through 3 as, as lampstands. There were seven churches on the mail route in Asia Minor. And in chapters 1 through 3, he singles out two of them as faithful churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia. These are the two lampstands that he's referring to. These are the two witnesses, his faithful uh, the faithful remnant of his church. Then in verse 7, uh, we read that the beast is given authority to persecute the church, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. But Christ breathes life back into his church and raises it up again in verse 11. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and, and they stood on, up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. The church looks down and out, but the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ continually restores his church throughout these end times. And, and now in verse 12, at the end of the age, Christ removes his church or raptures his church upon his return. This is the same event we read about in our scripture reading this morning from 1 Thessalonians 4.17, where we read, Then we who are alive, that is the church, uh, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then Jesus describes this again in Matthew 24, where he says, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So the first characteristic of the rapture is that Christ comes for his church. Secondly, we see that he comes with a loud command. Uh, the church is raptured with a loud command. Again, note verse 12, Then I heard a loud voice from heaven. This is Christ summoning his church to ascend. Uh, it continues, come up here. Uh, the voice of Jesus commanding his revived and faithful church to meet him in the air. We read about this as well in 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, this morning. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Other versions say with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. 
It goes on in 1 Thessalonians to say the dead in Christ will rise first. That is, believers who have already died will be raised and, and given resurrected, glorified bodies. And then finally, we who are alive and remain will be given bodies like them, resurrected, glorified bodies. We, we will be like him, uh, Paul writes. We too will be given glorified bodies. So this second characteristic is that Christ returns for his church with a loud command. The next is that he returns to meet in the air. The third characteristic of the rapture is that Christ meets his church in the air. Look at verse 12 again, and let's read further this time. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven, saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. He heaven can refer to uh, the, the place where God lives. Heaven can refer to our eternal home and glory. Heaven can also refer to the sky, the atmosphere. Heaven as opposed to earth. This is likely what John has in mind here based on what we see later. Several passages uh, describe the way that we will meet the Lord in the air. Again, let me point out some cross-references to you that say this very thing. Again, in this key chapter, 1 Thessalonians 4, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, that is, people who have already died, uh, to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. And again, Matthew 24, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Then in Revelation chapter 1, he is coming with the clouds. Acts chapter 1 describes it, the ascension of Jesus. Luke writes, and when he had said these things, remember he's speaking to his apostles here in chapter 1, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? In other words, looking into the sky, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In the air. One Bible scholar sums it up this way, the saints ascend in a cloud, which means that they are transformed at the coming of the Lord and will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, so far, much of this has been familiar. But maybe what I'm going to say next isn't so familiar. What happens after we meet the Lord in the air? When Christ returns... And just stop and pause for a minute and think how insanely wild that's going to be. You're going to hear a trumpet. You're going to hear a, a loud command. And you'll be gone. Can't happen soon enough, right? <laughs> but what happens after we meet the Lord in the air? Many believe that we ascend to glory with Christ, our heavenly home. In other words, Christ doesn't come all the way down to earth. He comes to the sky and then goes back. Uh, and then he'll come again after a period of seven years. I don't think this is the case. And the reason I don't think of 
that this is the case is because of the language Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 4. And the terms he uses seem to indicate something completely different from that. And so you that have uh, hold a different view, hold on a second until I attempt to explain this. But many think we ascend to heaven or to glory with Christ when he calls us. But Paul gives us a very clear idea of what happens through the terms he uses. And again, I'm going to use this cross-reference of 1 Thessalonians 4. And I want you to note the underlying word here in the middle of this verse. We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And that's a fairly pedestrian term. What meets what? It meets what? Meet, right? This word that Paul uses refers to a special kind of meeting that took place in the ancient world. The Greek term refers to the ancient practice of how a city would welcome an important visitor to their city by going out to meet him and then accompanying him back into the town. In fact, Acts uses the word the same way. When Paul approached the city of Rome, several people came out to meet him and then traveled back with him into the city. Notice what it says. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. The same term. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. The believers then accompanied Paul back into the city. And, and, and then this same word of going out to meet an important visitor and, and escorting him back is used in Matthew 25 in the parable of the virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom, of course, Christ. And the point of the meeting is to accompany him back for a, a festive reception. So, so, Pastor Rob, what's the point what is this Greek term Paul uses here in 1 Thessalonians 4 and these other places tell us? Paul's telling us that when Christ returns, we will go to meet him in the air. We will go to meet him like an important visitor or better as a conquering ruler. And then after meeting him, we will accompany him back to earth celebrating his triumph. I dare say that's a bit different from what we heard growing up. Listen to Dr. Sproul describe it. He says this well, at the coming of Christ, the church will experience a rapture, being taken up in the air to meet Christ as he comes. The rapture will not be secret, but open and evident. Its purpose will not to be to whisk the elect away from the earth for a while while Christ returns for a second, second coming. The purpose of the rapture is to allow the saints to meet Jesus in the air as he returns and be included in his entourage during his triumphal descent from heaven. His coming in this manner will be attended by the general resurrection, the final judgment, and the end of the world. That's a little different, isn't it? We will meet the Lord in the air on his way to conquer his foes. 
we will be in his entourage. There's a copy of this article from Dr. Sproul down here if you care, care to look at it. This is, this is the third characteristic of the rapture, and, and, and this includes something that perhaps we're not so familiar with. And then fourth, something else about the rapture we're not so familiar with. And the fourth characteristic is that it occurs in the sight of everyone. Every eye will see him. Look at verse 12 again. This time we'll pick up in the middle and read toward the end. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, again meeting the Lord in the air, and their enemies watched them. This is described in, in other cross-references about the return of the Lord. Uh, again, I've mentioned chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. And again in Matthew 24, Jesus says, Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man. What scripture tells us? an important part of the return of Jesus, and this is consistent throughout these descriptions, is that when he returns, all will see him. This will not be done in secret. The rapture of his church will not be invisible. It will be evident to all. All will see Christ remove his church. One more thing I want to point out to you. Uh, the fifth characteristic is that this all takes place at the last trumpet. Now, this isn't mentioned in our passage. I'll admit that. Uh, but we see it in these other passages that refer to the removal of the church. Uh, the church is removed from the earth when the final trumpet sounds. And, and uh, one more time, back to 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And also Matthew 24 again, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds. And then 1 Corinthians 15, another important passage about the rapture. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that is, die. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. When does this last trumpet sound? It sounds in verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There's a little overlap going on here, obviously. Uh, our passage uh, kind of foreshadows the seventh trumpet. It, it, it anticipates the seventh trumpet. But we also heard this previously in chapter 10. The, the passage of, uh, uh, the, that describes uh, our sovereign Christ. John sees this vision of Christ uh, referred to as the angel uh, of the covenant and in chapter 10, 
Uh, it says, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and, and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Just as he announced to his servants, the prophets, we've, we've see this trumpet call both announced ahead of time and we see the actual call come a, a little later as our verses anticipate uh, verse 15. There is, there's overlap, but we've, we've seen this before. The same thing happened in the seal judgments, this overlap, this anticipation. But what we see, fifthly, is that the rapture of the church takes place at the last trumpet, the trumpet that sounds in verse 15. This is the first event that we see in our passage, the church raptured, and it has these five characteristics. I'm not concerned whether you believe me or not. You can study the passages on your own and look at them in comparison and determine where you need to land on these. But this is uh, what I believe Scripture, how Scripture pre uh, presents the removal of the church, the rapture of the church, uh, as it is described here. There's another event that will happen when Christ returns. The second event we see is the great city humbled. And if you didn't weren't here last week to hear about the great city, I'll describe it in, in just a minute. But here we'll find that the great city is brought to its knees at the return of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, um, uh, this, the great city is mentioned in verse 8, but uh, that's what we see throughout this section. I want to point out four things about this humbling of the great city. The first thing we see in this second event is a great earthquake. Look with me in verse 13. A violent earthquake takes place at the Lord's return. It says in verse 13, and at that hour there was a great earthquake. At that hour means, of course, at that moment, at the same time, at the same time that Christ is returning uh, for his church to remove his church, there is a great and violent earthquake on the earth. This earthquake coincides or occurs at the same time as the rapture of the church. This is not the first time, nor will it be the last time we've heard about this great earthquake. Uh, we read about this great earthquake uh, at the opening of the sixth seal. Uh, it says back there at the sixth seal, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sixth seal also introduces the final day, the day of the Lord. There will be a great earthquake on the final day. Uh, chapter 6 mentions this. Uh, chapter 16 mentions this earthquake on the final day. It says, ahead of us, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. 
This event takes place on the day of the Lord uh, at, the, at the same time Christ returns and removes his church. We see this great earthquake. Next, we see what this earthquake affects. It affects the great city. As I mentioned, we looked at this last Lord's Day morning. Uh, uh, this great city is, is violently affected by the earthquake. Again, verse 13 goes on, and, and at that hour there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell, 7,000 people were killed in the great earthquake. So, so again, what city is John referring to here? What, what is this, this city? He, he mentioned it in verse 8, and, and their dead bodies, will, the two witnesses, that is, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Uh, uh, this is not a reference to a literal city or a in a specific location. That word symbolically that John uses indicates, as John has done throughout the book of Revelation, that he's speaking in a figurative way. Uh, he compares it to Sodom. He says this great city is like Sodom, full of sexual immorality. He says this great city is like Egypt, which persecuted God's people. He said this great city is like Jerusalem that uh, crucified the Lord. Uh, and like Jerusalem, this great city is where unbelievers crucify Christ over and over again. This is one summary of the great city. God's enemies live in the great city, not in one particular place, but in the worldwide structure of unbelief and defiance against God. So this is any place in the world where people oppose God. We know it's a, it's a figurative city. Uh, the population of this city is described as uh, peoples and tribes and languages and nations. Uh, the population is described as those who dwell on earth. This city consists of unbelievers across the planet. And it's this great city that is affected by this great earthquake. Look at the devastation that takes place in the great city. A tenth of the city fell. Because we're talking about a, a, a city of unbelievers across the world, this refers to vast destruction. And 7,000 people represents a, a, a multitude of unbelievers across the earth who are killed at this great earthquake when Christ returns. There's a great city that is affected by the earthquake. The third thing we see in this, uh, this event is great terror. Take a look at this as verse 13 continues. Uh, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified. This is not the healthy fear of God. This is not awe or reverence from God. It, the, the term means to, uh, to feel intense fear, desperation. And so this is not appropriate fear of God that the city experiences, that the city of unbelievers experiences. It's dread. It's dismay. We know this is what the world experiences when Christ returns. We, we saw this back in chapter 6. Uh, in the sixth seal, 
Uh, when Christ returns, it says the sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? There is dread. There is dismay upon the worldwide city of unbelievers. And there is dread and dismay as they come to realize that the removal of Christ's church will be followed by their judgment and their doom. Great terror. And lastly, great humbling. The world of unbelievers, the great city, bows the knee to Christ at his return. Again, in verse 13, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. There are many who believe that this refers to genuine repentance at the return of Jesus Christ. That a great number of unbelievers are converted, but give glory to God or gave glory to God does not necessarily indicate their conversion. Often this phrase is used in the Bible and simply means tell the truth. Give glory to God. Tell the truth. When Achan stole from the loot of the city of Jericho, led to 36 men losing their life, and Achan was finally caught out in the casting of lots and his tribe and finally his family, his tent. And remember how Joshua comes to him in Joshua uh, chapter 7, and he says, uh, Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you've done. Achan, tell the truth. The phrase is used the same way in Matthew 9, the man born blind. The Pharisees can't believe that Jesus Christ could have healed a man born blind. And so the Pharisees buttonhole, pigeonhole this man and they say, tell the truth. In John 9, it says, so for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. This is the sense that it's used here. These unbelievers who've seen Christ's church removed from the earth, who've experienced this great earthquake, finally must are forced 
to acknowledge Christ for who he is. I like this comment. They give glory to God when they are compelled by overriding terror to recognize that the true Lord is Christ and not Antichrist. This falls far short of a redemptive turning to God and praising him for, for who he is and what he's done. This truth-telling, this acknowledgement of who Christ is, I, I think it's perhaps what Paul describes in Philippians 2.10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I believe this is the humbling we see when the world is forced to acknowledge Christ for who he is. This second event uh, of our passage is directed toward the unbelieving world. After the church has been removed, the, the thing that happens concurrently at the same time is this next event, the great earthquake that affects the great city, that inspires great terror, but that leads to great humbling as they bow the knee and acknowledge Christ. Well, there's a third event. First, we've seen the church raptured. Then we see, secondly, the great city humbled. The third event we find in our passage is that the end is announced. The end is announced. What end exactly are you referring to? I'm referring to the end. The end of history. The conclusion of history. Uh, the moment when Christ returns to judge the world. There are two things that John mentions here. Uh, or two parts. He first announces that the, the second disaster has concluded. In verse 14, the second woe is past. And, and perhaps you don't remember, but back in chapter 8, there was a, an eagle flying overhead with a loud voice, and, and it said, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, or, or alas, or even horror. Horror is coming. Disaster is coming. The uh, next trumpet was the first woe. The first disaster is over. In verse 12, the first woe has passed, and behold, two woes, two disasters are still to come. The sixth trumpet begins the second woe, the second horror. Uh, and it includes this interlude that we've looked at where Christ appears to his church as, as sovereign Lord, where he com uh, comforts and commissions his church. But it is a great disaster uh, on the world of unbelievers as we read this last portion that the church is removed and all that remains is their end. First, he says, the, the, the second disaster is concluded. But then he goes on to say, uh, he says in the second half of the verse, that the third disaster is almost here. Uh, he says in the second half, behold, th the third woe is soon to come. 
this third uh, woe is introduced by uh, uh, an interjection. Watch out. Pay attention. What are, what are his readers, especially his unbelieving readers, called to pay attention to? Is that this disaster is coming quickly. Soon to come. It, it follows on the heels of the second. There will be no delay. And this third disaster is the worst disaster of all. The end of all things has come. The conclusion of world history is at hand. And the disaster for unbelievers is that it is too late to repent and believe. Again, Christ announced this in the chapter before this. In the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. When the seventh trumpet sounds, it's too late. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is about the resurrection. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, he was first to be raised. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, that is the church being uh, raptured. And then he goes on, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. The third woe is coming. The day of salvation is past and they're left with the horrible reality that the day of God's wrath has arrived. Pastor Warren Wearsby tells the story of a, of a frontier town where a horse bolted and ran away with a wagon that was carrying a, a little boy. And seeing the child in danger, a young man risked his life uh, to catch the horse and stop the wagon. And the child who was saved, unfortunately, grew up to be a lawless man, and one day he stood before a judge to be sentenced for a serious crime. And this lawless man, the, the young child who was saved, uh, recognized the judge about to sentence him. He was the man who had saved him years and years ago. And he pled to the judge based on, on how he had saved him earlier. He pled for mercy uh, because of that experience. But the judge said this. Young man, I was your savior then. Today I'm your judge. And I must sentence you to be hanged. And one day Christ will say to the world of unbelievers... The long day of grace is over. And I've come today as your judge. So, just need to stop and process this. Every one of us 
needs to understand as Psalm 95 says today is the day of salvation today is the day of salvation you might be sitting here today and you could couldn't care less about what I'm saying you couldn't care less about Christ and his cause or any of that church stuff, then I must caution you, friend, today is the day of salvation. Jesus Christ is offering you the free gift of forgiveness from sin. If you would but turn from sin to trust in Christ and his death on the cross, he says, uh, this forgiveness is yours. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you trusted Christ? I'm not trying to be melodramatic as, as people often do with this text. You have no guarantee because the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. I, I don't know all that must transpire before Christ returns. I think it could practically come at just about any time. It's closer than it's ever been. Today he extends the hand to you as your Savior. But if at 5 o'clock tonight, if he returns, you will face him next as your judge. So one application is turn to Christ. I plead with you, turn to Christ. Flee to the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. There's another application for those of you who have turned to Christ. Peter gives us this application in 1 Peter 4-ish. Oh, what lives of holiness you and I are called to live. That when Christ returns, we're not embarrassed. He calls us to flee from drunkenness, love of worldly pleasures, sins of the flesh, and so the other application is, if you name the name of Christ and he returns, what will he find you doing? The word shame has no meaning in vocabulary, in your vocabulary, until that moment. You will know shame. And you will be saved, but by the skin of your teeth, you'll make it to glory smelling like smoke. For those of you who know Christ or say you know Christ but are fooling around. And then third, for those of you who name the name of Jesus but aren't fooling around, aren't trampling his name in the dust, for the people around us, 
5 p.m. this evening might be too late for them to hear. There is a host of people in our circle of influence who need to hear that Christ extends his hand to sinners, offering his gift of free forgiveness if they would but turn from sin to trust in him. This is so sober that we must consider how faithful we are to communicating to our friends their great need of Christ. This is our third application. So, whew, heavy passage, and I'm sorry, but I'm not. This is what I believe Scripture teaches about the removal of the church. As, as I've studied it over the past 15 years in particular, this is what I believe it looks like. Uh, I've come to conclude it will not look like uh, what I was taught growing up. And you're welcome to hold that view, and, and that's fine. I, we won't think less of each other if we, if we do. I believe his return looks like this. And it has three events. The church will be removed. And our removal will have these five characteristics to it. And second, the great city will be humbled. This world around us, after Christ comes, will be brought to its knees. And then finally, the end is the next thing. The, the end. And we'll see this in the seventh trumpet. Uh, Lord willing, next Lord's Day in verses 15 through 19. Let me pray as, as we conclude. We, we only want to be uh, as moved about these verses as you, Holy Spirit, would want us to be, that there would be no false guilt, that there would be no manipulation, but that we would recognize this great truth for what it is. It's a very sobering reality. Great joy for believers when we're removed from planet Earth. But oh, what comes follows. What, what comes after, what, what follows your return, Christ, is, is, is deathly sobering. And I do pray for anyone here in the room who has yet to trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord, that you would... Christ Jesus, in your great love for sinners, draw them to yourself. Your spirit would move them, open their eyes to see the truth, and open their eyes to see that your return and what follows it is no joke. And Lord, for any of us in the room that's been fooling around, who, who name your name, but yet have been participating in ungodly things, Father, uh, convict us of those things. And Father, for those of us who know you and are following you, help us to be faithful to proclaim the good news as we were commissioned to do earlier in this chapter. How oh, to reach out to people and call them to repentance and faith in you, Savior, to cast their weight upon your payment for sin 
Jesus, do this in us, we pray in your name. Amen.